All right. If you were in Lapine last week, uh, then you're hearing the same sermon again, <clears throat> Justin. So, uh, but um, for the rest of you, hopefully, hopefully this will be fresh. We're moving right through Peter, same as we've been doing. We're in chapter three, and for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the subject of submission, basically. Um, all things submission. And, um, and so Peter's been on this discourse, um, and what he's done is he, he's moved through different areas um, of submission um, that you and I uh, are to have in our daily lives as citizens, uh, ultimately first and foremost of another kingdom, but also as we're currently passing through and citizens of this kingdom, there's some, some submitting that needs to happen. There's some conduct that we need to have uh, with others so that we can all play good in the sandbox together and glorify God in the way that we do that. And so he starts off by talking about government um, and, and human institutions, uh, which I know everybody loved that one. That was a, that was a good one. Um, and and how we are to come under them uh, for our own good. Um, even when they're bad, um, the only time we don't, and this is what we didn't go into, is if they start start telling us things that, that uh, are the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. Uh, then we have a hall pass not to fight back or be malicious or be disrespectful, but to uh, very respectfully Obey Jesus rather than man, okay? But we talked about what sub- submission looks like first to human institutions. Then he moved into the realm of um, employer-employee, um, how an employee should live under, work under, come under um, his employer, um, even if they're wicked, even if they're bad, um, again. And then he actually moves into the house, um, wives to husbands, um, and then husbands to wives, and what that looks like today He's going to finish up this whole this whole discourse on the subject of submission with you and I, with this right here, this room, what's going on in here, um, and that is the church. How do we live in a way that pleases God, that honors God, that glorifies God, that makes God big in here as we go through this thing called life together, um, sometimes imperfectly? Uh, you all know uh, that it's not just because um, uh, we belong to Jesus, just because we've been born again and saved to a living hope, uh, that some of you are still really difficult people. Um, and I do mean me when I say that. Um, we, we, we can be challenged still. We can be challenging still. Uh, we're not perfect. Um, and so this is going to hopefully be helpful for us today. So this last one is how do we submit to each other? While we're waiting in the waiting room to get home to dad, to be fully glorified, to be fully perfected, how do we wait well? How do we live together well? How do we encourage each other well? How do we love each other well? How do we submit to each other well and esteem the person next to us above ourselves? So this is, this is really what Peter's going into here. So we're going to go ahead and go uh, read the text uh, in chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Peter says, finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 10, for whosoever desires to love life and see good days, 
Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I'm just going to let you in on this real quick. Is uh, 10 through 12 is obviously a quote. It's a quote from Psalm 34. Peter's borrowing from David back then. And basically all he's doing with that is he's reiterating with that quote that which he's already said in 8 and 9. Therefore... I'm really going to just focus on 8 and 9. We're not going to focus on 10 through 12 so much. So I just want to give you that that heads up there. So um, if you would, really quick, turn back one page. Just keep your finger there. Uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let me read this real quick. Peter says there, Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What does an infant have on its mind? One thing. It wants milk. That, that's it. Like, like the rest of the world could go away. And this infant just wants milk. And, and Peter's likening that to how you and I uh, should be uh, when it comes to the spiritual things of God. We should be one-minded. We should be single-minded. We should want one thing. That baby doesn't want a steak. It doesn't want a beer. It doesn't want uh, candy. Uh, it wants milk. It wants one thing. Um, when a baby grows up, a little bit, gets a couple years down the road, it becomes what we call a toddler. How many of you had toddlers? How many of you are the toddler? Because <laughs> this is what we're going to talk about today. I am sometimes too, so uh, this, is, this is for me first. Um, they become toddlers. Um, Vody Bauckham called them vipers and diapers. And so like... Like, how many of you think, like, kids are innocent? Like, babies are innocent, kids are innocent, like, there's no sin there, they're just clean. You haven't had toddlers if you think that. You haven't had a viper in a diaper. Because these things are all about themselves. They're all about them. And I found this thing um, on the Internet that I thought was kind of cute, so I'm going to read it back to you. This is how a toddler thinks. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I could take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If I'm building something or doing something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. This is for you, Val. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you were playing with it and you put it down, automatically it's mine. You guys are all laughing because you still think you still live this way. If it's broken, it's yours. And that's all that's all fine and good and, and cute for a toddler, but not for mature believers in Christ. Not for us. For followers of Christ, the big word is not mine, but yours. Not me, but you. Not self, but others. And so 
Peter, what he's going to do here is he's really going to lay out for us what it looks like to live in submission to each other here inside the, the church. What it looks like to live out our lives together in a not mine but yours fashion. And he's basically going to do that in three ways, or at least I've broken it down in three ways just for my brain. I have to do things this way. He's going to speak to the attitude that a believer should have. He's going to speak to the response that a believer should have. And then he's going to speak to the motivation that we have for that attitude and that response. So, is that me? (laughs) I figured I'd call you out. I gave you like 30 seconds, and then I'm like, I'm calling her out. (laughs) No, it's all, it's, you know what? And we love you, and we welcome you. Everything that Peter's going to talk about here has to do with our conduct and relationship to each other. And if we were to sum it all up, if you were to sum this passage up, we could do it with one word, right? Love. It's all about love. Everything Peter mentions here can find its place under the canopy of love. To live in submission well under each other requires love. To be more concerned with others than ourselves requires love. And so he starts here with the attitude of the believer, verse 8, in in which he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Um, And so he starts by saying, finally, which again, he's coming to the end of this subject of submission. Finally, I want to talk about this relationship in the body of Christ and what submission looks like. And the first thing that he brings up is unity of mind. Unity of mind, which basically means to think the same thing. And uh, the question I have is, is that even possible? Is that possible? Can you and I think the same thing? Because when I look out across this room, I see all kinds. I see a junk drawer. And I mean that. I mean that. In a com- that's a compliment. OK, like in a good way. Like we're all kinds of people from all walks of life with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of influences, all kinds of things that have played into our life and who we are. I mean, we're different people that like different things and prefer different things. And so um, I, 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 I just wonder when Peter's saying this, like, is it even possible that you and I are able to think the same thing? And so if we were to take just a, whatever subject, just like music, What's good music versus bad music? I'd burn you down. Because I know what good music is and you don't. You know what I'm saying? If we were to talk about movies, it would be the same thing. Restaurants. Style. Like on and on and on. We could even, we could not be of one mind in that stuff. We couldn't do it. Even if we move to Bible things. Even if we move to church things. Like the rapture. What if we just sat down and had a discussion on all things rapture and when it goes down? It ain't going to go down well. And some of you are like going right now like, wait, there's other views than mine? Yes, there are. And a lot of them go way back. Right? We wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't be able to agree on that completely. Or how often should we take communion? Or what is the actual work right now of the Holy Spirit in this world? Is, is he still, is he still rolling out the miraculous or has he ceased in the miraculous gifts? Like stuff like that. Like we probably even wouldn't be of one mind with those things. Typically, 
We tend to think that like-mindedness can only be achieved if someone agrees with us on everything. If you agree with me, then we're like-minded. But that's not unity, that's uniformity. Those are two different things. So how is this even possible? What is it that Peter is saying? Well, the word that he uses here for unity of mind is the word homophron, which means harmonious. Harmony. In a musical sense, harmony is the use of simultaneous tones working together in an orderly arrangement to achieve a pleasant unified sound or effect outcome. Okay? And so if we were to apply this biblically, in a biblical sense, We could say harmony assumes differences among people who are brought together in unity under one master composer. Think of an orchestra. Orchestras are pretty big, right? They're a pretty good-sized group of people. And you've got these people walking in from every background, influence, preference, ability, talent, Right? And instruments. They're different instruments. And these people are going to come in and they're all going to sit down and they're going to try to figure out how to do something that sounds together, unified. And there's not a good shot of that happening except for if there's a master composer, a director. A director who stands up there and actually puts everything in its place. Puts all the tones where they need to be. So that everything that goes on down there ends up being complementary and unified in the way that it's played, rather than chaotic and against each other. You know what I'm saying? That master composer is... What makes the difference? That master composer is what allows that group of people with different instruments and different backgrounds and different influences to be of one mind and one purpose. It's the same thing with us. In fact, Paul, Paul goes into this, right, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, where he talks about spiritual gifts and he uses the analogy of a physical body. Right? That we are all individual from each other. We are not the same. We're not all knees. We're not all elbows. We're not all eyeballs. We're not all ears. Like we're all different parts, but together we make up a body. Right? Together we work towards function as a whole. And it's the the same thing here. Um, If you were to remove, and this is kind of the bottom line. If you were to remove the master composer, which is Jesus, from our gathering, there would be little to no reason for me to tolerate you and for you to tolerate me. There would be little reason for me and you to have anything to do with each other. There would be little to no reason for you and I to come together and spend time together. Right? But because it's under a master composer, because we're bound together that way, not only do I am I okay with tolerating you, I'm drawn towards you. I actually need you. You're actually a necessity to me in my life so that we can do this thing called life, so we can be transformed and grow towards this one that we love and worship. I need you. And so the difference maker, the way that we think alike, 
is because we have the same master composer. And under his headship, we're able to come together and make some decent music. Right? I'm compelled to have you in my life because of Jesus. And the reason is so I can bless you and so that you can be blessed by me. Because of Jesus in you and in me, we are not then just a bunch of different instruments competing and playing against each other, but we're uniquely individual instruments playing with each other in harmony and for each other having unity of mind. Paul, or Peter says to have this. Number two, he says sympathy. I'm not really good at this one. Those of you that know me know that. Um, I try to be. I want to be better. Um, but it's not one of my strengths. It literally means to feel the same thing, which is interesting because first he says think the same thing, and now he's saying feel the same thing. If I love somebody, I'm going to feel what they feel. In fact, I'm convinced it can't be avoided. I will mourn when they mourn, like Paul says in Romans 12. I will rejoice when they rejoice. Because love does not comprehend a passive response to an active emotion within those whom we love. Sympathy is that which connects the disconnected party to the affected party. And Peter says that we should have it for each other. And I do believe, I, I really believe, that it's not something we can avoid unless we just completely avoid each other. Which some of us are in the practice of doing in ways. And don't get me wrong, I'm here too. I'm guilty too. I don't know how many times over the years I've seen somebody come in these back doors and sit on the back bench while I'm preaching and they just look at the ground and weep the whole time. They are so broken. Whatever's going on inside of them, whatever condition the world left them in when they, when they came crawling in here wasn't good. And it was obvious to me when I saw it. And there has been those times in my life where I thought, I'm going to slowly today make my way to the back in hopes that that person will actually be gone before I get there. I know that sounds horrible. But the reason why I do that and the reason why you may find yourself doing that sometimes is because we know that if we come in contact with that person, we're going to feel what they're feeling. We're going to take that on. It's just the way it goes down. And this isn't seen anywhere better than it is in the church. It's not, it, it's not displayed anywhere else in the world better than it is within the context of close contact Christianity, which is just normal Christianity, or it should be. We've seen this during COVID with people that we've discovered that we can get all the sermons we need from the television set, the worship music that we need from the radio. We can pray when we need to. We can read our Bible. We can get all the stuff that we want in Christianity minus the relationship, minus the feeling, the needing to feel, which I don't like either. I would rather not have that. I'd rather it be me, Jesus, and a fishing pole on a lake. Like To me, that sounds like ideal Christianity. But it isn't Christianity at all. Without this, it's not. We have not only been saved from our sins, we've been saved to something bigger than ourselves, which is the body, the bride of Christ. I need you, you need me, and it's not easy to do, it's hard to do, which is why a lot of people don't do it. It's difficult. Because when we're close, 
when we're relationally active and intimate, we are going to feel what the other person feels. Peter says, don't run from that, run to it. Don't try ignoring that and putting that off. Take every opportunity you can to walk in sympathy. All right, let's move on. If we're going to get anywhere, we better keep getting somewhere. Number three, brotherly love. I grew up with an older brother, three years older than me, and I chased him with a knife once. So um, we're, so we're just going to move on to the next one. <laughs> the word here is Philadelphos. And yes, I said that like a, like a white boy. Like I don't, know, I don't know how to speak Greek without sounding completely white trying to pronounce this stuff. Philadelphia. It gives the idea of something that's fraternal. Fraternal. This is a love that for whatever reason connects you at the deepest level with somebody else. Okay? For instance, Band of Brothers. Anyone seen that series? One of the best series ever made. Easily. Easily. Don't argue. It's the best one. I'm right, you're wrong. Um, Band of Brothers, right? It's called Band of Brothers for a reason. Like these guys came together um, in a unique context where they all went through something on such a deep level, but that they, their relationships would forever be altered. They would never be the same. They were baptized, so to speak, into something bigger than themselves, which bound them together as brothers, right? Well, in the church, you and I are bound together by blood. We are blood. You and I had to go to the same blood bank. We had to get a transfusion from the same donor so that we could live so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be free, so that we could be alive to Christ. Blood. You and I are connected on that level. And I don't think it gets deeper than blood. I think that's about as, as deep as it gets. This is why I can't go anywhere, and I don't think you can either. There's a piece of tape coming down. Um, <laughs> Squirrel, yep. Uh, I can't go anywhere on the globe and meet a brother or a sister in Christ and immediately have them be brother or sister. A week ago, me and my brother went out, Tony, um, and uh, uh, another friend was coming. He was in town and we were meeting him there and he ended up bringing another pastor friend of his that I had never met, right? Right? And so we sit down, and within a minute or two, I'm calling him brother. And he's calling me brother. And you know what? I mean it. Because we, we, we know that the, the, the bond of Christ runs deep. It's as if we've known each other forever. And, and the cool thing is that we are going to know each other forever. Like it, like it is family. And there's a lot of people in here that I don't recognize, and, and first-timers, we're glad you're here. And... Um, and <laughs> And, and I feel like, it, it, like I, I really don't need to know much about you other than the fact that Jesus is your everything. And that's it. That's all I need. And then you and I are, are off and running because we have all things in common from that point on. We have a bond that runs so deep that it's family. It's fraternal. And that's what Peter's saying here is to have that. Which means 
that we're loyal to each other and we're committed to each other. It's not easy for us to just cast people off that we have a hard time with. But we are, again, we're, we're drawn to them. We're connected as blood would be connected. Okay, that was uh, brotherly love. Number four, a tender heart. Again, not good at this one. Just ask my wife. Um, and what's funny about this phrase is it literally speaks to your intestines. Um, so it's, it's that inner place, that from the gut place. Um, the words used here actually, uh, for a tender heart literally means to have good bowels. <laughs> so, serious, like stick that on your refrigerator. Look at that every day. Like have good bowels today, you know? The human race has always had this common understanding that the deepest emotions we can feel are from the heart. They're from the gut. We still talk as if that's true, don't we? You know, what's your gut saying? Or what's my gut saying? Or from the bottom of my heart? It's kind of what we're, what we're doing when we, when we say those things, is, is we're referring to that place. Every time, including this morning, when I get up and preach, before I get up, there's this maelstrom of anxiety and stress that goes on inside of me. In my deepest part, these butterflies start to fly. Do you know where they fly? Right here. That's where it goes down. That's where I'm feeling everything that I'm feeling is here. It's in that that deep place. And this is where Peter tells us to be soft, not hard. Sensitive, not stubborn. Right here. Another way to translate this is tenderheartedness. Tenderheartedness is that we are able, we are, we are, excuse me, deeply concerned for others. Deeply concerned. You know, the church should be that place where the walking wounded are well cared for. Well cared for. This is why we charge all of you, not just Senior Walt and, and Susan, All of you, if you call the door your home, if you're on this bus going the direction that the bus is going, you are a welcomer here. If you see somebody that you have never seen before, it is your job, it is your responsibility to walk up to them and be deeply concerned. may not be anything there to worry about. Maybe low maintenance. But we should be the best welcomers that there are. Even those people, because I know they're there, because I've, the, the ones we stereotype where it's like, oh my gosh, I've seen this dude before a million times. Or, oh my goodness, here comes that person again. Right? And we kind of go the other way. But being tenderhearted doesn't do that. This should not be something that we just do. This should be something that we're actually great at. Like really, really good at. Number five, he says, a humble mind. And, you know, I almost kind of think, why do we have to be told this? Well, because humble or lowly people have always been viewed humanistically as weak and soft and cowardly. Everything in our flesh and everything in the world tells us to be, react, respond, carry ourselves opposite of humble. 
self-assured, self-concerned, self-confident, self-aware, all those wonderful things. Our Lord has charged us to be humble. He's charged us to be humble in our thinking and in our mind. And when we do, we will find our Lord there. You know what I'm saying? There's a a guy named F.B. Meyer that said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above the other. And the taller that you grew in Christian maturity, the more easily you could take the best gifts in the highest places. But I have now come to realize that God's greatest gifts are on shelves, one below the other. And that's not, uh, that it's not a matter of growing taller, but of stooping lower to find them. I like this because this is the reality. This, this is actually proven true in my life over and over again. The times when I've been most at peace, most content, most fulfilled, most satisfied in my Christian walk are the times when I have been low. Low in spirit. The times when I am not overly concerned about myself, but more concerned with others. When I don't care about what you think of me and I'm not trying to put my best foot forward and, and have this, you know, put on this great appearance, uh, show for you guys. But when I'm only concerned with doing the will of God, it takes me down. And when I go down, I go up. And it's the same for you. That's the key to going up, is to go down. That's where it happens. And we're actually going to get back to this in a minute, so I don't want to get too carried away here. But humility is key to loving well. It is key to loving well. So again, each of these attitudes, these five attitudes, Peter encourages us to possess and walk in these true marks of the Christ follower because they are the true marks of him whom we follow. And if I'm aiming at these targets, though imperfect, right? And you're aiming at these targets, though imperfect, we might end up finding ourselves in large part being one mind rallied to one around one purpose, which is super cool. But what about when we don't? What about when someone isn't endeavoring to walk in these attitudes? What about when somebody in here is not staying in their lane? Jordan. (laughs) What about when one of you or me is not doing our part in these attitudes? Then what? Well, then we have verse 9. This is the response that we should have with each other as a result of a submissive relationship. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. Do you know what my first response is when someone does me wrong, even in the church, even still? Payback. Yeah, I'm that guy. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I probably shouldn't be. Um, I didn't say I act on it. This is my first response. It's payback. Because after all, I have grounds for it, right? I'm justified in it because they're the offender and I'm the offended. I'm the victim. And victims have rights. We all know that. Like we're playing a game of battleship. Like that's how I almost think of it. When something goes down, you know? You took a turn. You damaged my battleship. Now it's my turn to sink yours. I'm sinking yours. Right? You deserve it. 
And and I'm not particularly fond of what Peter's saying here because he's telling me that I'm not playing a game of battleship. He's telling me that I don't get a turn. He's telling me that just because I've been fired on doesn't mean that I have the right or the justification to fire back. In fact, he's saying don't. Don't fire back. You know, I find it interesting that the dude that's writing this um, is who he is. Because <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't help but think um, while I'm reading through this that I, I would think or hope that there was something that was still fresh on his mind which happened in a garden when Jesus was present and the soldiers came to take away his Lord. Right? They meant him harm. They meant evil towards him. And it was, it was unjustified. I mean, the dude was innocent. Jesus was innocent. And they're taking him away. And what's Peter's response? He pulls out his sword, right? To handle business. To repay evil for evil. To fight this evil. Right? And if he was a, a better warrior than he was a fisherman, he might have actually got the dude's head. But instead, he just got his ear. To which then Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, don't you know that those who live by the sword will die by the sword? In other words, if you, if you take up the same strategy as the offender does, as the evil one does, then you're no better off and you can't expect anything better in return than what they're going to get. So what he's saying. So he says, we don't do things this way. Put it away. Put your sword away and then Jesus fixes his ear. Oh, that would have been cool to see. Just handles it, heals it, you know. Pretty cool. Jesus' answer has always been not payback, but bless back. Always. And what a ridiculous notion, just like Peter is saying here. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, in other words, be contrarian. <laughs> on the contrary, Bless. Don't only uh, not fire back, but actually give them uh, something that they absolutely don't deserve. And this is this isn't a ridiculous, ridiculous notion, a foreign concept, unless you've been on the receiving end of it. If I have never experienced the gospel personally. In my life, for myself, this would be one of the stupidest things I have ever heard in my entire life. But I have. I have experienced the gospel. And because of that, not only is this not the stupidest thing I have ever heard, it's the most beautiful thing by far that I have ever heard. To do right, even when wrong has been done. To not repay evil for evil is literally what saved my life. It's what saved my soul. It's what won me over. And you know what? It's what won you over too. Question, when did Jesus die for you? Was it once you like, got clean, handled some business, put some things in order, like started making steps towards Him? Jesus died for you and me when we were complete enemies. Enemies. Rebels. 
sinners in the middle of it. He didn't wait for us to, to get out a, a piece of paper and a pen and start writing down a list of our biggest things to, to knock off and start working on in our life. We couldn't. It's too much. But He looked at us in that moment when we had nothing towards Him. Nothing. And there was nothing inside of us that was good that He would look at us and notice us. That He would pick us out of a lineup other than our sin and our rebellion. And He initiated love in that moment. At that time. While we were yet sinners, He came to us. He did not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But He blessed back. That's why I stand here today. And that's why you guys sit here today. And that's why we're all together worshiping this God. That's the worthiness of His worship. And the praise and the adoration that we have is what I'm talking about. That He loved us rather than gave us what we deserved. This is the Gospel. And this is the heart of what Peter's saying. We have a reason. If you disconnect the Gospel from this, this is a stupid thing. Right? Not only a stupid thing, this is like an impossible thing for us to do. We won't do it. We will continue to do what's native to us. We will repay. And we will revile. We will pay back. But because the Gospel is real for those who have experienced the love of God while you didn't deserve any, this is something I I even want to do. I want to do it. I don't want to repay evil for for evil anymore. Let me just say this so that it's clearly known. And I know know that you guys know this. I'm just say it again. If there's ever been something that separates Christianity from every other religion and belief system that exists on earth, it is this. We love our enemies. Crickets. I know, that's a, that, that just sounds wrong, doesn't it? This is one of the, the, the things that more than anything else sets the church of God, the bride of Christ, apart as a peculiar people among the nations. Is that we love our enemies. Our response to wrongdoing against us is one of the greatest testifying factors to who and what we believe in. And what is it, closing, what is it that's the ultimate motivation for us to live this way? Why would we? And I think I just said it. That God gave us blessing rather than what we deserved. It's a pretty good motive. And it is that blessing that has called us to blessing others for more blessing. Do you guys see that there? Look at verse 9. Okay, because this is kind of a weird loop. But it's actually a really cool one. Verse 9. The backside of verse 9. Where he says, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You catch that? In other words, we've been blessed by God and Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, brought into a relationship as a child, so that we could dispense blessing for His glory, and in doing so, accumulate and experience more blessing coming back. It's this type of a deal. It's like the best-kept family secret that Peter's given us here. We are blessed 
so that we could go bless and get blessed some more. How many of you like blessings? This is a stupid question. How many, how many of you like to be blessed or to feel blessed or to get blessed? You know what I mean? And some of you are like trying to be all spiritual. You're like, no, I like suffering. No. We all like blessing. I mean, we are big on a, on a theology of suffering here too, but, but we like blessing too. Do you want a good life? Stupid question. How many of you want a good life? Here's how to do it. If you want a good life, then love people. Love people. Instead of specializing in yourself, specialize in others. Instead of being a toddler that's all about mine and mine and mine, be about others. Jesus has invited you and I to come and die. And that's exactly what he's talking about when he said it. That's what the invitation is. To come and die means that we don't only come and we die to our sins, but we come and we die to self. Because we're the problem. The problem is within us. The problem is we like ourselves too much. We're way too fond of ourselves. We think way too highly of ourselves. And we think that there's joy there. And there is no joy there. And some of us wonder why we're not experiencing joy in our life. And it's because we got the crosshairs firmly fixed only always on ourselves. Fully self-absorbed, concerned. And I know this is true for me. I'm not, again, I'm sitting with you. right. If I could sit with you right now, I would. But I have to be up here. Like I'm talking to me. And so where do we go when we need joy and we need happiness and we need blessing? We go outside of ourselves. We go make that new purchase. We go get that new girlfriend or new dog, if that's your thing. If you're an animal person. Or we go on vacation to this place, right? These things are going to fix us. These things are going to fulfill us and bring us happiness and blessing. It's that tropical island down there, which honestly sounds really good in February and March every year. Okay? But it ain't it. It's all an inch deep. No more. We don't have to look any farther than Solomon to know that to be true. This dude exhausted every drop of what the world had to offer. And at the end of it, he said, it's nothing. There's nothing there. He was bummed. There was no blessing. It was an inch deep. And then you got someone like Job, who's kind of on the other end of it, where he had everything. He had this great life, and it's taken away. In an instant, it's gone. And Job is left with nothing except for some sores and some jacked up friends. Right? And what does he say? God is it. I need nothing more. I have everything I need. He had nothing. And he had everything because he had God. He wasn't turned in. He wasn't focused on himself. And what he could get and what he could feed the flesh with, he was focused on that place where real life comes from. Even when your life has been laid to waste because of circumstance and turmoil and tragedy, just like Job's, he could sit there and say, though you slay me, I will follow you. I'm not going anywhere. There is nothing better than you. 
That, brothers and sisters, is where you and I find blessing and happiness and satisfaction when we stop being about ourselves. This is why Jesus invites us to come and die, and I think it's something we need to remember and do every single day. We need to come and die every single day. I need to die every single day because every day when I get out of bed, I'm still there, unfortunately. And so this thing still goes on telling me what's going to make me happy and what's going to bring me satisfaction through my day, and it won't. There is nothing but knowing Jesus deeper than I ever have before that truly brings me Satisfaction and blessing. And that's done by loving others. It's done by not being about you, but being about others. It's done by serving others, by pouring out your life for others, by submitting to others, by coming underneath others, by esteeming others above yourself. This, it sounds like the weak one, like just a doormat. I mean, the world, again, they'll look at it and say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But when you do it, you will know that that is where blessing is found. This is what we've been created for. This is what we've been saved for, is to pour our lives out as an offering for each other. And in return, I guarantee you will be happier than you have ever been in your Christian walk. You will tap into something that you didn't even know existed. Jesus calls it the peace that surpasses understanding, the abundant life, life abundance. Is not in cars, houses, big bank accounts, and stinking, you know, spiffy threads, right? It is found in knowing Christ on a deep level. And I want you to know Christ on that level, and I want to know Christ on that level. So that this symphony, this orchestra, under our master composer, can put out the most beautiful music that this community has ever seen or heard or known by how we treat each other. Lord, thank you for your text, which is always um, which is always right. It's always needed. Um, I thank you that we can trust it. I thank you that we don't need to um, uh, add to it or dress it up, God. Um, I thank you, Lord, for your love for me. I thank you that while I was still a sinner, God, you paid attention to me even when I didn't pay attention to you. And I thank you on behalf of the other people in this room too. Thank you for being so merciful. Thank you for being so compassionate. Thank you for showing us what a humble mind looks like. Thank you for showing us what a true servant looks like, God. And I pray that you would, that you would grant us the, the, the mercy and the strength the power, with, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, to, um, to reflect some of that, to dispense some of that, to, to, to resemble some of that towards each other. Thank you for the table which tells us, again, the story that we just heard, that salvation is of you and not us. I cannot come to this table thinking of myself, God, being turned in. I, it, I must be thinking of you because you're the only reason I'm saved. And I pray that that would be the mind and the heart and the approach to everybody here today as they would be thinking of your great work, that this table represents Christ for us while we were yet sinners. And herein lies our victory. Herein lies our hope and our joy and our celebration, God. And so make this a celebration today in the hearts of your people in Jesus' name. Amen.